Oh, the shame that will get. If you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now then, welcome along to Team 33 and a call here with you. Coming up a little later on, we'll be turning to Italy and the theme of society, politics and football with Wayne Gerrard, who is going to tell me about the Italian football ultras. If you want to listen back to the podcast that we recorded last week with Jelena Jurenovic about football in the former Yugoslavia, you can get that in the OTB Podcast Network in the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a huge response to that. So really interesting chat with Yelena last week. If you want to listen back, it's following on from that this week that we're going to be talking about Italy and where society mirrors football or football mirrors society, whatever way you want to look at it. Before that, though, we're going to be looking at some of the biggest stories from the week of football. Obviously, the big news this week is that Neil Lennon has resigned from his job as Celtic boss. Now, this is something that is quite close to me because some of you may know or may not know that I also host a Celtic podcast called The Huddle Breakdown. It's essentially the XG performance analysis podcast for Celtic Football Club. And we have been following Celtic very closely this year. And basically, this Celtic team and Neil Lennon's team have been absolutely dreadful this season. You can tell that without actually looking at any of the stats. All you have to do is watch them. They're absolutely atrocious. But the drop-off has been across the board chance creation down by 40 percent goals created down by 40 percent all these different metrics that are used now in modern football they have been down massively this season and it's just been absolutely dreadful for neil lennon has obviously won five of the nine titles of the ten in a row that they were going for and he's also won trophies as a football player as well for celtic but it was getting to the stage where he was really damaging his own career, his own legacy at Celtic and his own mental health as well because there were so many people against him at this point in time that it would have been so much healthier and so much healthier for the club overall if they had taken the decision out of his hands and got done away with him a couple of months ago, five months ago to be exact. I wrote a piece on the Off The Ball website about the current state of affairs and I also did a piece on OTBM around the same time about Celtic uh, when they got beaten by Sparta Prague 4-1 in the Europa League and were out of the Europa League, finished bottom of the table in their group stage. And I said it was time for him to walk away or time for the club to take it out of his hands. That was five months ago. Rangers at that point in time weren't even that far ahead of Celtic in the table. Now Rangers are 18 points ahead. In two games' time, they'll clinch the first title in 10 years and things couldn't be worse for Neil Lennon and Celtic at the minute the future doesn't look bright at all for them if you look at the future on the pitch Odson Edouard their lead striker is going to be out the door Christopher Iyer the defender that has been standout over the last couple of years is probably out the door as well and you go through the team and it's a lonely filling in for positions that they have sold their assets and Celtic are obviously a selling club they're a club that bring in these young players 
develop them and send them on for profit. But the, the problem with that is that if you're not replacing these players, then there's literally no point. The system will fail, and it is failing at Celtic at the minute. All you have to do is look at their right and left back situations with Jeremy Frimpong going to Bayer Leverkusen in January. 13 million he was sold, and Celtic had no replacement for him. They had to get John Joe Kenny in from Everton on loan. Left back last season, Kieran Tierney was sold. Nobody lined up. Well, Bolingoli was lined up, but then that ended in disaster as well. And if th- th- that theme continues throughout Celtic squad, then they're going to be decimated at the end of the season and they're going to lose out on a lot of good talent. So the future is not bright at Celtic Park at the minute. And fair play to Steven Gerrard. You have to give him some credit in this as well. Last season, if the season finished, there's a high chance, a high possibility that he would not still be in this Rangers post and still be in his job because he was struggling for a large period of his time. But they have turned it around and developed something at Rangers now where they are in the last 16 of the Europa League. And that is a massive achievement. You do have to give them credit where credit is due. But over on the other side of Glasgow, it has been an absolutely dismal period of time. And all you have to think about now is... This is the time for a massive reset at Celtic Football Club and it needs to be done. It needed to be done five months ago but at least it's getting done now and they can start to rebuild and move on whether that's under John Kennedy, the current assistant manager who's taking charge until the end of the season or whether that's under someone else. I see that Frank Lampard, Rafa Benitez, uh, Ra- um, Mar- Martinez and beyond are being linked with this Celtic role. It is a role that will attract people from all kind of circles of football it will have the young coaches who are up and coming and want to prove themselves it will have people like Rafa Benitez and even Frank Lampard could take the option that Steven Gerrard went down and see this as a stepping stone see that as a way to revive his reputation as a manager so there's endless possibilities but for the future of Celtic you would prefer them to go down the sort of analytical route or the longer term sort of process when appointing this manager because they need a director of football even Brendan Rodgers said that they need to start thinking long term because at the at the minute the problem with Celtic is that they were not thinking long term five out of the ten seasons that Rangers were not competing with them essentially they only qualified for the Champions League five times out of that period when they had a free shot so it's this has not been a one season thing this has been a long long time coming in terms of Celtic Football Club and it just ended in such dramatic circumstances so that is the Celtic news Neil Lennon has resigned and John Kennedy takes over in other news and I don't know if you've seen it but we've been following this closely Mick McCarthy's revival of Cardiff City continues and the Guardian has picked up on this How's it, how about this for a headline about Mick McCarthy you would not have expected this a few months ago Mick McCarthy's simple magic leaves Cardiff's fans spellbound writes Ben Fisher in The Guardian. McCarthy obviously took over Cardiff about two and a half months ago. McCarthy has got work done in double time and galvanised Cardiff, taking 17 points from a possible 21 game. So nine weeks he's been in charge of Cardiff City. 17 points from a possible 21. Remarkable stuff from Mick McCarthy at Cardiff City. And to put this in context, Ben Fisher writes that McCarthy, when he came in, Cardiff City trailed Bournemouth by 13 points and were 15th in the table. And now following seven defeats in eight matches, uh, that was Cardiff City's record, seven defeats in eight matches, that's when Mick McCarthy took over. Last week, Cardiff City put four goals past Preston North End and on Wednesday they travelled to Bournemouth knowing that a victory could put them into sixth place in the table 
and ahead of Bournemouth. So an, an absolutely remarkable tale of redemption for Mick McCarthy at Cardiff City after being sacked so quickly by Apoel in, uh, in Cyprus. So th- this is a, a, a remarkable story, really. And Mick McCarthy sort of had a, a go, had a go at the people who doubted him. So he said, maybe the people are having a look at it seeing our results and think, well, maybe those experienced guys do know something about what they're doing and do have a role to play. All I hear whenever a job comes up is that that this has to be some young guy with bright ideas. And you know what? There's not many new ideas that come around in football. It's still kind of the same. Keep it off the opposition and put it in the back of the net and get it back. I think that shows you that Mick McCarthy's football philosophy has not changed since he left his Irish post. He's very much still the same old school guy who thinks that exactly as he said there you you score more goals in the opposition and often you win games so it's a pity that Ireland didn't do that too often under Mick McCarthy but I mean maybe Mick McCarthy is more suited to club football where he can work with the players and to be fair like I mean how many players have you heard say bad things about Mick McCarthy not too many it's essentially a lot of them talk about how good a man manager he is so maybe club football is just suited to make McCarthy a little bit more and maybe that's why we're seeing the revival of Cardiff City and to be fair to him he he is a championship manager that is the standard of manager you're getting maybe that's just not good enough for international standard at the minute maybe he didn't get to work with the players enough as a manager and maybe his ideas are well suited to the standard of play that he's doing right now because I don't think anybody doubted that Mick McCarthy could get back into a club role and do a job at a, as a club manager especially in the championship but I think many people would doubt whether he could do it at a top job I mean it does I, I think he's touched on something important there that a lot of the jobs that come up people talk about it having to be a young manager and I think that it, in his sense of the word where Cardiff needed a revival they needed someone to come in instead of the ship sort of like what Celtic needed when Brendan Rodgers left but the the problem is that with these older managers, you don't often get a long-term plan. They're generally in a job for two to three years, and generally they do a good enough job for those two or three years. But the problem with it is, is it's unsustainable, and you need young ideas, fresh ideas, and maybe there's not people coming in and revolutionising uh, formations too much or changing things. I mean, Mick McCarthy is right enough there and saying that there's not too many new ideas in football, and there often isn't. But the ideas that the younger managers like the Nagelsmans or the Pep Guardiola's or the Klops, when they come into the game and change things, it's generally for a longer term and the dominance lasts for far longer than, uh, say, if you put Mick McCarthy in charge of the, the bigger jobs, he generally would do a good job. But you need to develop from that and you need to look past the short-term planning. And I, I'm, I'm not too sure Mick McCarthy is a, a 10-year progression manager who's going to develop Cardiff City to a, a club that get into the Premier League and beyond that whereas the younger managers who do have time on their hands to develop these things then they may be able to bring a club like Cardiff if they're the right guy obviously there's young guys as well that don't know what they're doing but people who are bright and who understand the game and can develop those long-term plans and get given the time by the clubs then that is a sustainable model for me. I, I'm not sure I agree with Mick McCarthy. Uh, turning to Ireland, Richie Towle is set for a summer league of Ireland return. 
and he offs for Shamrock Rovers over Dundalk. So this is Dan McDonnell in the Irish Independent reporting on Thursday night. Richie Towell is set to join Shamrock Rovers when he comes home from England this summer. The Irish Independent understands that the Dubliner offered, uh, opted for a move to Talla instead of accepting an offer to join his former club Dundalk with negotiations on a pre-contract agreement completed earlier this week. Towell, 29, is ready to move back to the League of Ireland after five and a half years across the water. Firstly with Brighton and Hovavian, then with Rotherham, before a move to ambitious Salford, Salford FC in 2019. He was part of Salford's attempt to secure League 2 promotion from League 2 and is viewed as an important member of their squad. So this is great news for the League of Ireland, really, because Richie Tull was absolutely phenomenal when he played in it completely earned his move over to Brighton at the time and one of those players again sort of like I don't know like your Jack Burns or people often question why League of Ireland players don't make it and then they generalize and say that it's their fault and the League of Ireland is isn't a good league but Richie Tull was a good enough player he thrived at Rotherham and played quite well for Salford by all reports as well the problem with his move to Brighton was it came at a wrong time where Brighton were not playing a system that suited his play at all and he uh, he struggled to make into the team, so he was just unlucky with Brighton. In fairness, and this is a massive boost for Stephen Bradley because obviously he's tried to replace Jack Byrne, who's gone to the aforementioned Applewell. Aaron McAniff has gone to Hearts, and he's brought in a couple of good players now. Um, obviously, there's a couple of moves from the League of Ireland as well, and moving down from Dundalk to Shamrock Rovers. I think Shamrock Rovers looking quite strong at the minute because you've got a, a guts of the squad who have already been together for a period of time working together and you've also got the crux of some really good players coming in and strengthening where they've lost strength from the likes of Jack Burton and Aaron McAniff leaving the team so Dundalk have obviously brought in a lot of players as well but the issue with them is a lot of those are from different clubs different countries so it's going to be a little bit longer of a settlement period for them I think especially under the new management first year for uh, that new management team as well so I think they might struggle at the start of the next season so I, I do think it will be Bowes and uh, Shamrock Rovers battling out for this League of Ireland t- title when it eventually gets going just before we finish up then with this segment and this is just an interesting one it's not really news as such but Angelino the former left uh, left back for Man City now with RB Leipzig uh, with some interesting quotes saying that Pep Guardiola absolutely killed his confidence when he played for Man City and Angelino obviously didn't play that much for Man City during his time there a couple of appearances off the bench a couple of appearances to start at left back especially considering when he was there left back wasn't exactly the strongest position for Man City he has been playing quite well for RB Leipzig and you would have seen him against Manchester United I think he tore, he tore Manchester United apart in the second leg of the group stages of this year's Champions League but essentially he's saying that that Pep Guardiola never gave him a chance at Man City that he absolutely killed his confidence he said that the confidence was everything when you don't have the trust of the coach it is everything I was judged for pre-season two games and then I didn't get my chance until a few months it's hard to play one game every two months so I'm happy that it happened so I could come here and meet Julian and everyone here it was a 50-50 experience on one side I really learned a lot from Pep he improved me as a player on the pitch and I have that, to be thankful for that experience. On the other side, I didn't play as much as I wanted or that I deserved. So that's just an interesting one because I think we know that Pep is a ruthless coach and even when the likes of Sterling was taking missing chances or taking shots on that weren't really on in the first place, that's when you saw him start to get really frustrated with the management style of Pep 
and you've seen that Pep was getting on his back even like when he I think didn't he score a hat-trick at one point in time and Pep was on to him straight away after the game and giving out to him straight away in front of the camera so a brilliant coach but often frustration at times and I'd say he's really tr- tough after five or six years listening to him criticize you every single day so that was Angelino some interesting stuff from him and some good stuff across the week as well in terms of football stories if you want to check them all out we are turning to Italy after the break because we are discussing football society politics and how that all mixed together stay tuned team 33 this is OTB sports radio now then, welcome back to Team 33. So we got a huge reaction to the piece on football in the former Yugoslavia with Jelena Jurenovic last week. The link of politics and society and the rise of the right wing in that region. If you missed that, you can listen back to it on the O2B Sports app if you want to download the podcast. Tonight, we are continuing down the same theme of society, politics, and how that is steeped in football. Our focus tonight is on Italy and Italian football. And to discuss this further, I'm joined on the line by Wayne Gerard columnist at Roma. Wayne, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much, Enda. This is uh, something I'm, you know, always talking about in class and I teach a couple college classes in my high school classes and I'm always trying to bring football into it one way or another. So I'm excited to talk about a little bit from the birth of it, how it starts from even the fascist era up until today and what's going on. So let's, uh, let's break it down. Yeah, good stuff. So I read your piece on the Gentleman Ultra's website and it was fascinating because it was almost exactly what I was hoping to talk about. Let's start from the very beginning because I think most people would know about the Italian Ultras. Not a lot of people would know where it comes from. So 1970s, 1980s Italy, it's a bit of a unsettled place in terms of political tensions. Yeah, man, it's, it's turmoil at that point in time. Aldo Moro is the prime minister. He's kidnapped ultimately killed in something that just shocks the country. And to go along with that, I mean, football always echoes what's going on in society. And that's played out so much in Italian stadiums where not even just the big teams, but the mid table side teams as well, their fans really start to militarize. And I'll say they're they're really politically based before they're football fans. So it's not that they're just in the stadium and they're like, oh, we got to get into politics. No, it's, it's, it's an effect of what's happening in society. And we see that so much in Inter, Milan, Roma as well, even though they start a little bit earlier, Lazio. So the main clubs are uh, almost with the exception of Juventus, whose Drugi have stayed out of trouble, oddly. Uh, they, they're totally going to start a wave of extremism which will result in a bad era that also echoes what's going on in England under Margaret Thatcher and this types of uh, tragedies that we see in violence, which is kind of unfounded before in sport of any type. Like why, why are suddenly the fans fighting each other? Well, it's because they're looking for some type of something to legitimize themselves and what's happening, you know, an underappreciated, perhaps sometimes undereducated, undervalued, under-resourced society. And that just plays out in the streets to the stadium. Yeah, so 1970s and 80s in Italy was economically a tough time as well. You mentioned the kidnapping and murder of the Prime Minister of Italy. That's something that I actually hadn't heard of before I read your piece. Can you explain the background of that story? Yeah, so Aldo Moro, he was was picked up by the Brigate Rossi, which were the uh, Red Brigades, who were kind of this paramilitary uh, communist movement at the time. And it happens right after 
there's the bombing in Bologna where, uh, you know, I think around 80 people, 82 people were killed as I'm just going back through my stories. So it's like, you got to revisit these things because so much happens in such a tumultuous time. And, uh, but, you know, by 1982, radicalism takes kind of a, a dip and then it goes into this solid period. But these years of lead is what really, I think, sets the, the scene for um, the radical movements, which will happen in the 90s and going into the early 2000s. And when I think when Moro is killed by this extremist group, it sends a message that that you actually can topple a government, that you can stage a coup in a modern 20th century country. And that's something I think that is definitely felt around Europe. And I mean, with Moro, it's, it's such a sad scene because there was pretty much, I think, all negotiated for him to... Um, to get to get his life back with negotiations but then i think something like the pope even pleads with the kidnappers and the often offers himself in exchange and then when he goes to be transported he gets shot 10 times so it's like just some crazy crazy stuff that uh you know if, if you didn't live through it i'm sure it's really hard i'm 30 years old obviously i wasn't mm -hmm. there but i can't imagine such a climate you know which could lead people to really making this type of thing after World War II. You know, this is not like, oh, a one-off thing. This is like after the country's already healed some 20 to 30 years. And I guess maybe that's in a way something that allows it to happen again is the wounds aren't fresh anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. In terms of the involvement in football, how is how are we starting to see that seep into football grounds now, that, that sort of political unrest or political tension between the two sides? You know, we always break it into these two sides and... If you look into so many books by the leading authors of Italian football, it'll talk about fascism, the communists fighting each other. I mean, it's so much more just about town rivalry and campanilismo, this uh, belief of my town is better than yours, and this fear of outsiders, which stems back to the Middle Ages of a feudal society of people, you know, on the mountaintop, you know, looking over at their neighbor and not knowing really who they are, you know, this type of uh, tribalism. Does it seep into, into football in the 80s? Like, yes and no, because it becomes a, a calmer time. But it, I, I think it really does set the stage for the 90s, which will grow in violence. And there's there's like one-off events, you know, where there's a Roman fan, um, Antonio De Falchi, and he's killed by a flare. But these are not like major political movements like you might see in like the ultra movie or ultras with uh, the new one about the Napoli fans where like these there's these big fights they are um you'll you also see the foundation of kooks though right around this time which is Roma's like uniting of all the different groups but they're they're not militant to the point where like uh today we look at them and they're like oh they're fascist and they're democrat or or uh or a uh, communist and they believe in this where it's like this ironed out philosophy. I mean, they're not totally sociologists, these people, you know, they're football fans first or they're townies first. Townies is like a term we use for people who are just ingrained in, in their own like domestic rivalries, right? Even like beyond football. So I think sometimes like too much credit is given to like, oh, well, they're, they're fascist and they're, they're communists. And like they get, no, these guys will be friends. They'll, they'll definitely make, Gemelagi, like these twinnings, these uh, couplings of these groups, if they have a common enemy, who's that common enemy going from the 90s to the 2000s? It's the police. 
So now you see you see these groups teaming up with one another. So it proves to you that it's not even so much about um, their political philosophies as it is with I'm a victim and I'm defying authority. It's the same old nonsense, in my opinion, that just trickles through constantly of like, oh, I didn't get what I deserve. You know, why do you give it to the immigrant? Why are you not protecting me? You know, this is the fatherland. My grandfather died defending this country. And that type of rhetoric that really fuels these young men into creating these groups. Yeah, the the 90s really saw across the world sort of a rise or a second rise of a counterculture sort of attitude when you, you look at the the, the the punk scene or the the mod scene or these different gangs that would have spurred up mainly in England that would have been the counterculture in England whereas in Italy it seems to be very football focused which is interesting mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's definitely true and as as time goes on you've got other events uh, very recently such as Anne Frank or the murder of Diabolik Diabolik was somebody who uh, commercialized the ultras in a way, you know, he really made it into a business. So if anyone was familiar with him, he's somebody who in the, in the nineties organized like the merchandise, the, the uh, season tickets and things like that as kind of a connection between Lazio and the, 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 their fans. And he was able to make like hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and you see how that movement can really be taken advantage of by some not so kind souls, you know, Mm-hmm. So did the term ultras, did that originate from Italy, from the Italian football fans? Ultra originate from Italy. Um, not sure about that one. A lot okay. of these names, they're taken from either World War II, World War One, ancient Rome. That would be like the basis or of like the Serpenti of Inter, you know, the, the snake of Milan. So, or the, the Fossa dei Leoni, the Den of Lions. So they're like uh, almost like a national football league team, you know, like mm-hmm. American football almost. They could be as cheesy as that, or they could be like Fedain, who's named after a Palestinian, typically, or probably named after a Palestinian military group, because Palestinians, you know, are seen as like the defenders and Israelis, the invaders in some perspectives. So yeah, you'll see, you'll see these names adopted, but the actual etymology of ultra- I'm not so sure. It could be an Italian word that's been kind of morphed into this modern day meaning. Okay, fair enough. So let's talk about the actual clubs themselves and the uh, ultra groups connected with those. So obviously the big ones that you recognize from even just watching them in the Champions League or Europa League is Juventus and um, Lazio, Roma, um <clears throat> Napoli these are the teams that you all often see maybe not Juventus you often see quite a lot of fan issues with them and a lot of policing at their games we'll start with Roma maybe and the originated and uh, where their ultras originate and where, what they stand for yeah you have you have conflicting points here you have Fidane who's going to come from a communist communist more of a partisan background and boys who are call themselves far right uh, as a group. The Dane starts because in that quarter of Rome, in that neighborhood, they are partisan because there was an atrocity committed by the Nazis and they killed, it, I don't want to give a number, if it's something like 40, it could be 400. I mean, what's, I don't want to say what's the difference, but it was an atrocity mm-hmm. that happened in that area, which is why that group um, is still today kind of a partisan group, left-leaning as opposed to boys. 
are they enemies with each other? Like, no, like they're, they're really Romans first and politics is just something that tends to go along with them rather than defining them. And Rome definitely, I think, has some of the most notorious <laughs> fans in, uh, in all of Italian football. And I think the media likes to jump on that too. If you go back to Sean Cox, right? Like everyone wants to touch upon that story when we talk about it. And yeah, it, it definitely happened from Roma fans. That's something that's been figured out. They were stupid, they were wrong. But uh, aside from Roma's fans, you know, Lazio are, are there, some of the most passionate. And I think some of that is due to under underperforming of social pressure and not enough investment. You know, Rome has always been the spoiled child in a way, the city itself, not the teams mm -hmm. in that, you know, ancient Rome, the forefathers were so great. And now we're left kind of with the ruins and how do we cope with that? So I think that's, that's a, that's something that the city lives with today, you know, and it's not in a great state. Rome is not Paris. It's, it's not modernized like London. It's much different. It looks, it, it, it needs a lot of help and a lot of work. And, uh, I think some of that anger and that angst comes from the social conditions, definitely within the city. Inter's always had a respectable uh, fan base. Atalanta's fierce, and Atalanta's fans—you know—they'll travel up and down the peninsula. These are these are serious fan groups that have heavy numbers, and they commit their Sundays not to church but to traveling to these away games. And in terms of Lazio, I think it, most people would know about them because they are quite often linked with fascism and more sort of openly endorsing their fascist background than most clubs. And they have gotten into trouble in recent times with Anne Frank uh, posters and their excuse generally being that they're not so much racist as they are trying to poke and provoke the Roma fans. Um, how much of that is a political beliefs in fascism and how much of it is just almost ignoring political correctness and trying to guard out the away fans as much as they can? I think anyone who had an ounce of, uh, an, ounce of an education would never do such a horrible act. I think there's no excuse for doing that because at the end of the day, you know, that was an innocent girl killed that you're characterizing in order to send a stupid message that you think is going to affect people across town one way or another. It's just abhorrent. You know, the people, there's no excuse and whatever they want to say, grow up, you know, some, one day you're going to be held accountable for who you are and your actions and just grow up. I don't even want to hear it from them or they you know, what they might want to say. I grew up in the United States, you know, and we don't we don't have any toleration for that in, in any way. And that's something we really tried, along with Italians, to to get rid of to liberate was that type of uh, ignorant mentality. And we, you know, no one needs to. Well, I guess some people need to know what the long term dangers of that type of thinking are and how it can be excused and just allowed to perpetuate. Disgusting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the Italian football authorities have been slightly uh, lenient when you look at their punishments for Lazio in the, in the past in terms of a, a smaller club. And this is one interesting part of your piece. And it's something that we've spoken about with um, an, an Italian football journalist before on the show is Hellas Verona. And I think a lot of people would remember their um, racial godding of 
Mario Balotelli and uh, black players of of um, in recent memory. Where does that come from from Hellas? Because I think that is more based upon their geographical history as opposed to anything to do with Italian history. Yes, it comes from their own beliefs of their area of regional separatism. They want to be their own thing. They don't enjoy being part of Italy, I don't think. I think many of them in Verona still think that they this is part of the Middle Ages and we're still Italian city-states, yet a lot of time has passed and that is no longer the truth. And whatever they want to believe, the worst part of that comes out in nationalist ignorance which eventually trickles down and becomes racism and whatever, you know, excuse, I, I do hear it from fans like, Oh, they're just agitating the player. No, you don't target someone racially just to agitate them. You boo them, you chant, but yeah, come on, a racial slur is something which hits at someone's soul. It's a completely different attack. But, but to answer your question, that comes from uh, their own nationalism of uh, Verona and the region of Veneto and that they do wish to be independent. And there's a long-standing sentiment within its populace about okay. that. Very interesting. And just before we finish up, Wayne, you're based in New Jersey. Where is the Italian connection? What got you into Italian football? My background and seeing what was actually happening. I grew up in the United States. You know, like I said, some of these things, I just I couldn't even imagine it still happens. I can't believe people still have ideas about... Uh, you know, either anti-Semitism or fascism in, in, in any way. And to see how it can, to see after the Holocaust, how things can still end up in society and, and fall through the cracks of education and the state can let that happen. It's just, it's such a shame. And that's kind of like my energy behind it and just seeing how, how can we let this happen? And I teach history now and it's something I like to, you know, always express to them. And mm-hmm. I think it's one thing in American politics too, why, why the last president got so much attention. I think one of it, a part of it is because people are afraid of a, a demigod politician. I'm not saying that he was or wasn't, but I think people have a fear of that. And then the media bites into it and then it creates like a, like a media circus around it because of, you know, whenever anyone wants to kind of like make make the most extreme example they say oh like a nazi but in reality nobody's like a nazi unless they're doing things that really involve killing and jesus extremist beliefs right so that's kind of where like my passion energy comes from to look into these topics are, are you italian american yeah so new jersey does that still have a base of italian americans living in it i suppose yeah yeah huge uh at this point, a lot of people are at least have a little bit of something else in them besides Italian, but, but yeah, New Jersey, Staten Island, Brooklyn still has enclaves, uh, a lot of Florida now as the generations get older and they, you know, make a little bit more money. There's this line, right, of people who moved over to the lower east side of Manhattan, Little Italy, the next generation moves to Brooklyn, the next generation moves to Staten Island or New Jersey, and then maybe Florida. But the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those people who came over that were very lucky, people like me, now are able to go back and study in Italy or relearn the language they were forced to to forget or not to speak at home. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of that generation that's now kind of bearing the fruit. Yeah, for, forgive me if this comes off as wrong, but I'm I'm currently watching The Sopranos for the first time. It's great, favorite so, show. 
Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, but the the in the history that surrounds that because I I've I've read a little bit about New York because obviously the Irish have quite a, a an interesting history in New York as well, and it 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 went from almost the black areas became the Jewish area or the Jewish areas became the black areas and the black areas became the Irish areas and then they became the Italian areas. Is there still tension between those groups in New York or has that sort of calmed down now that New York has sort of modernized and I know the nineties weren't a great period for the city. Nah, not, not anymore. Most Italian people here at least have some Irish in them. I think I do maybe in a great grandparent or even further up the line. So there's, you know, there's such a mix of Jewish, Irish, Italian blood bloodlines are extremely common if you grew up in this area. That's quite the mix of the impoverished immigrant groups who came over. People, mm-hmm. you know, just just like I am today, a little bit of everything in, in 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 those two groups because all those people lived next to one another. So <laughs> that's how it works, man. But uh, but yeah, the Sopranos is oh, I can talk your ear off. It's, it's you know, it's it's a little unrealistic. I thought in the 2000s for a lot of what they showed to be happening, that was more like okay. a 80s thing, you know, before like before surveillance cameras could catch people and things like that and mm-hmm. DNA. But uh, but yeah, that show breaks my heart, man. It has a lot of truth to it in family dynamics and and uh, family structure for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm currently on season five, so I haven't. I haven't got to the end yet. I know what the ending is, which is the most annoying part because who hasn't heard what the ending of The Sopranos is yet? But man, it's uh, encapsulating so far. Anyway, Wayne, it has been, uh, it's been brilliant having you on the show. Before I let you go, have you gotten over to Italy for football matches or do you get over often? Or what's it even like supporting a football team in in America, I suppose it's probably easier on Eastern time rather than Western time. Yeah, it's, it's much easier on the East Coast in general. If you're in Montreal, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., like we've got places to go watch it. I watch it at Roma Club New York often or on ESPN in the States. So, well, Good stuff. Wing, Gerard, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Anna. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Welcome back. So that is all we have time for on this week's Team 33. Thanks as ever to you for listening. If you want to listen back to that or listen back to any of the series so far in terms of the society and politics, there's some good episodes up there. Tim Vickery started off with the right wing football in Brazil and why the Brazilian footballers are following the right wing Bolsonaro. And then last week we were talking to Jelena Juranovic who does some brilliant work. She wrote a good article in Pogmagol as well about this exact thing, football against all evil. It was football in the former Yugoslavia and how that developed and how that is now entrenched in right-wing fascism in the areas, so Serbia and Croatia as well, and how their ultras are a breeding spot, essentially, for right-wing politics. That's all available and ready for you whenever you want it on the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again, same time, same place next week. But until then, take away, Johan. (laughs) 